before we get to the time where I begin to talk with you about the things that I believe God's going to do in your life today in this service. And some of you may say, I don't need a physical healing in my body. Um, there's a message in my heart that I believe that God gave me specifically for you. Um, but you are not first today. Um, there is uh, possibly a child on the other side of the world that has been assigned to you. And um, I say possibly because only you will know. Um, and I want to talk about that child on the other side of the world. For those of you that don't know, there's an organization called Compassion. And what Compassion does is it goes to the most remote areas of the world. And it finds the poorest of the poorest of the poor. Um, people who have uh, their house is literally a piece of metal or tin with a rock on it being held up by four sticks. I've seen it. Uh, they find these communities. And if there's a church, a Christian, Bible-believing church in that community, they partner with that pastor. And a lot of times these pastors have 30 people in it. Sometimes they have 100 people in it. Sometimes they have 12 people in it. But they partner with that pastor in that remote community. And they begin to build a program within that local church. And then they start looking for these children that have no food to eat. And they find sponsors around the country that will sponsor this child. And they take a, a sponsored child and they put them in that program that's within that local church. And if a child gets selected to be in that program, that child has just received the golden ticket. Because at that moment... His health care is taken care of. At that moment, his meals are taken care of. At that moment, his education is taken care of. At that moment, there's a senior pastor that is owning the spiritual walk with God that that child has. If that child gets a sponsor, they have received a golden ticket. And they take care of them all the way up to 18 and many of them beyond that. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but... Um, I want to dive into it by bringing up a person who received the golden ticket when he was just a little boy. And uh, he's actually a pastor now, and we're going to get into that in just a second. Um, but I would like for Pastor Richmond, why don't you come on up here and uh, give him a, a warm round of applause, will you? So glad you're here. So glad you're here. Okay, um, I want everyone to feel like they know you, and so uh, why don't you just take a few minutes and introduce yourself and, um, and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Go ahead. Yeah, so my name is Richmond Wandera, and I come from a country called Uganda, a country in East Africa. Our country has fallen on very hard times. Between 1952 and 19 and 2012, we've had six major civil wars. And a lot has happened that has caused our country to become, right now, the world's second leading country 
with the youngest population. Over 70% of my country's population is below the age of 30 years. And 50% of the 70% are below the age of 15. It's a phenomenon. You walk around and what you see is children. And our fathers have been taken away from us. Our mothers have gone. And so we don't have people to teach us how to live. And for a long time, I craved for that. I was saying, God, just bring a man in my life. Bring a woman in my life. Someone I can ask, how do I live? And that was the context in which I was born. But not just from a physical standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint. Between 1971 and 1979, we had a president that stepped on the scene. And his name was Idi Amin, a Muslim man who had one vision, a Muslim country. And he persecuted the church. Listen to this. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Today, Uganda is the most charged East and Central African country. 84% of my country's population worships the Lord. It's in the midst of this country that I was born. I mentioned to you that my name is Richmond Wonder, and I want to take time and share with you a little bit of my story. So, when I was eight years old, the thing that I feared the most, the thing that had happened to other kids, happened to me as well. My father was taken away from us, and by that I mean he was murdered, murdered in the presence of my mom. And in a single day, it seemed like I'd lost both parents. My father had died physically, but my mother, she was not the same again. To get a word out of her, and to put this in perspective, my mother was the kind of woman you called when you're having a bad day, okay? She could talk your ear off. She was always exuberant, happy, and all of that. But when my father passed, I remember her just coming, and she kept saying one sentence over and over and over again. And she kept beating against this coffin where my father was, saying, Stephen, Stephen, why have you left me? Stephen, Stephen, why have you left me? And she just kept doing that over and over again. People tried to pull her away, and she just kept doing that. See, my mother grew up at a time when educating girls was not considered important. My grandparents didn't believe in educating girls. By the time she was in her late teens, she was prepared for marriage and given off. By the time my mother was 26 years old, she already had six of us. And I was the third born. And now here she is with six children, no education. The government has no fallback position. She's stranded. And now Stephen is gone, my dad. It didn't take long before doors just began to close before us. The first door that closed, obviously, was the door of having a parent. We, I, I, was, I, was, I had lost that. But then I was told, Richmond, you can no longer go to school. And I began to stay at home. You just wake up in the morning and wonder, what do you do? But then that day came when my mother said, there is no more money for food. And what began as visits to the street became a lifestyle. We could just wake up in the morning and go. 
And some days were harder than others. But I experienced in very specific ways what Mother Teresa calls forgottenness. Because I had endured days without food, I had endured days of sickness. But one thing that really showed me how poor I was was this. The day when I was sitting with my sister under a tree, it was really hot. It was about 1 p.m., bad day. Some of the kids had gone ahead of us and picked up the kind of stuff that would normally pick up. And we were there just really starving. And just people just walked on right by. Nobody stopped to ask, you know, what's your name? You know, where, where, what's your parents? Have you eaten food? None. And for the first time, it just dawned on us that we're actually invisible. We're unseen, forgotten, unwanted. And I recall one specific day when I think about my childhood that really drummed poverty in. And this was the day. So I hadn't had food the previous night, and now it was 11 a.m. the next day. My body was shaking. So I go to a shopkeeper called Yunge, and I said to him, look, I could do anything, anything. Just give me something to eat. And Yunge said, ah, oh, right on time. I've been looking for somebody to go three miles to Nakawa Market to, to get soda for me. I have these two empty crates of soda. If you can take them to the Nakawa Market and you bring the full ones, then I will give you something to eat. And he said, can you do that? Without really knowing what it meant, I, I said, yes. So he told me, get down on your knees. And he got the first crate. And I must explain this, that the sodas in Uganda are different from sodas here. In Uganda, we have long soda bottles and 24 in a crate. And under the crate, there's this diamond shape of hard plastic in which, as I went down on my knees, Yunge got this first crate and put it on my head. And I could, I could feel it press through. And before I could decide whether I could really do it, he got the second crate and put that on my head. And then he helped me out. I remember taking the first step of a, of a three-mile walk and slowly making my way. By the time I arrived, tears were dry on my face. And this guy who, who received me said, look, are you able to carry full crates of soda back? What choice did I have? And then he quickly got a soft cloth and he put it between my head and the first crate and loaded the second crate of it. And I walked all the way back to Yunge's shop. I remember arriving and Yunge gave me 20 cents. I went and bought scones, they're like buns to eat. I remember taking those and I shared with my siblings. And I swore that no matter how hungry I get, I will never go back to Yunge's shop. But listen, it wasn't many days past before I was back at the shop again, back at Yunge's shop asking, what else do you want me to do? See, many people have defined poverty differently, but what, to me, when I reflect on my own life, the best definition I can give of poverty is this. It is the lack of choice. It's the absence of choice. Because as a kid, I would never choose that life. Never. And my mom began to realize if nothing changes, I mean, we are going to die like many other kids. So my mom, with her poor health, she picks herself up and goes up to a friend of hers and asks, look, is there any place I can find help? And the friend says to her, have you heard of this child sponsorship program at the church? 
over there, go over and just tell them. If, if, if they help you, good. At least you, and if they say no, well, at least you've tried. So my mother goes all the way to church and introduces herself, tells a story. And that was the beginning of the change of our lives. Yeah. service and I'm sitting here and I'm listening to it and I still can't believe the level of desperation that they experience Um, what happened once you found out that you were sponsored how did your life change because of that so after they took our pictures and took our birthday information and all of that. I'm standing uh, under a jackfruit tree. And those of you that have been to Uganda know a jackfruit tree. It's, anyway, so I'm standing here, and my mother is there talking with this compassion worker, and the guy breaks the news. It says, Richmond has got a sponsor. My mom, she threw down the broom and did the Lugisu dance. I said, right, let me explain this. So we are from the eastern part of Uganda. And I'm now married to a beautiful lady called Rosette. And Rosette is from the Baganda tribe, so they dance a lot using their waists. But for us, it's our shoulders. So from time we were young, we're trained how to dance the Wagisu way. And my mom, so what she does, she throws down this broom and she goes off. And as she's turning around, I look at her, I say, that's good news. I remember running off to my mom and my mom looks at me and says, here's the thing. You've got a sponsor. I knew in that moment that my life had changed. And we picked up ourselves and ran off to the Compassion Project. And there I meet Pastor Peter. And he's the beautiful thing about Compassion's work. They work through the local church. And I meet this Pastor Peter. I did not know what pastor meant then, but Pastor Peter is there. And uh, he looks at me and he welcomes me. And he tells me, Richmond, don't forget this number. Your number from today on is UG129 forward slash 0064. (laughs) I could never forget that number because here's the thing. He said to me, if you feel sick, a fever, diarrhea, whatever it is, don't run to the church. Don't run to the Compassion Project. Just run to any hospital around you. Tell them your number. They'll look you up in the S&G list that we supply all the hospitals around. They will confirm that you're a sponsored kid. And guess what? They will treat you and don't worry about the bill. Guys, my eyes have seen kids die. And to be told, don't worry. He's taken care of it. We, we have pictures of, uh, of you when you were a child. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got, I think we have four of them. But would you go ahead and show the first one. Show the second, third, and fourth whenever he asks for them. Okay. Go ahead and show one of them. Ah. Uh, all right, so to your right, there's this boy here with the red short, okay? 
that cute face. Yeah? <laughs> that was me when I was a kid. And that's me with my sister Doreen, who was six at the time, my brother Richard, Ronald, and Raphael. And um, at this point, we're in our lives, and it's, we, we're just one family. Uh, we're too young to process and, and theologically frame what's going on. And that's the innocence of the child. And, and I'll tell you that what is unacceptable is that the most vulnerable children who are voiceless, if they remain unadvocated for, undefended, that's unacceptable. And this is where we were right now. Just, uh, just see if you can move to the next slide. Uh-huh. Now there, um, I'm all the way to your right, to your left over there. And that's, now, that's my mother right in the middle, and that's, that's the rest of my siblings. And at this point, I have gotten the news that I've been sponsored. And already there's a joy beginning to uh, come. But I want to show you one picture of when I first came into the, the project. Did you go to, ah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's me. Um, can I just pause and tell you a little bit about poverty? So when you tell somebody to define poverty, they use very physical descriptors. They say poverty is the lack of food, it's the lack of clothing, lack of the roof over your head, lack of warm this and, and, and clean water. And they use very physical things. But the true monster behind poverty cannot be seen with your physical eyes. It can't. Because for me, poverty was like a voice. It came to me. I couldn't escape it. Saying to me, you are unwanted. Saying to me, you are nothing. And it affected my self-concept and my self-image. And you see, that type of poverty, there is no amount of money that you can throw at it to deal with it. None. But I want to share with you how that poverty was dealt with in my case. See, when I joined the Compassion Project, first thing that happened, I was given an opportunity to be a child again. See, at the project, at the church, there was all these merry-go-rounds and seesaws and all these things that they prepare for kids, and I was there sweating and playing and just being a child. I mean, you could give anything to let a child be a child. And that was the beginning. But then I got a letter from my sponsor. I want to tell you, friends, I, I have the best, I had the best sponsor in the world. This is why, one, my sponsor was a 15-year-old a girl. What kind of maturity would be given to a 15-year-old who lives in a culture where most people will walk looking down on their phones? How many likes have I got? How many? Who would give this 15-year-old the maturity to look up? And God wants to show us a lot of things. And when you look up, there's so much that you see. She saw this boy that needed help. And guess what? She took she took a babysitting job so that she could take care of me. And do you know what I learned from that? I learned that, you see, this world does not receive more hope. People in desperation and in darkness don't receive hope 
because you bought the next car or you bought the next phone or the shoes that you're looking for, or the hairstyle that you want. That's not what changes the world. See, I love that what changes the world is this, is when you make a decision to live simply so that others can simply live. You know, um, it's $38 a month to sponsor a child. And so when that teenager decided, okay, I'm going to sponsor one, uh, that's a, a major, $38 for most families in the country is a lot of money. But for a teenager, it is extravagant but to live simply to cut something out so that someone else can be brought in Mm -hmm. that's powerful Uh, two years ago we brought compassion to the church maybe some of you guys would remember and um, my wife and I adopted two little girls and uh, well last December as many of you guys know the story uh, I went to Brazil And I thought to myself, hey, I'm going to Brazil. These girls live in Brazil. I'm going to just, you know, jump over here and see them and then jump back to this conference. Because in my head, Brazil is like, you know, Texas, right? (laughs) I had to get on like a five-hour flight to get across over there to see the girls and then five hours back. But it, it might have been one of the biggest highlights of the trip. And it changed my life. Because these girls knew who I was. See, compassion goes out of their way to make sure that the children know who you are. Now, you can send letters to them. They can send letters back. And what's so interesting is you were telling me how important those letters are. Because it begins to change their identity when you send them letters. And it's gotten a lot easier over the years. It used to be snail mail. Now you can actually email your letter, which is powerful. But here's the thing. I met them. And when I walked into the church, these little Brazilian girls, yelling something in Portuguese, I have no clue, came running up to me and gave me the biggest hug. Let me show you a picture of them. This is Talita and Taina. And uh, they're twins, obviously. And um, here's the thing. That outfit, um, I bought them that outfit. Their birthday was about six months earlier. And so Compassion will shoot you an email and say, would you like to get them a birthday present for $15? And so you send them $15 and they take them to go buy a birthday present. And then they hold the birthday present up and take the picture so that you can see what they got. Well, what was interesting is um, the outfits that they're wearing was, they had grown. They had hit a growth spurt. Um, And so I'm looking at them and I'm like, the nicest clothes you have is a little bit tight. It's a little bit too small, but it's what I got you. And then I realized Every good thing they have is because of me. It's because of a sponsor. I I sponsored them. Um, Go to the the next picture. 
Um, this is me, um, obviously, with them, with the flag. And um, go ahead and go to the next picture. This is their family. This is Marcella and Talita and Taina and then Jonathan. You can see their house in the background. Um, most of the houses in these poor communities... Uh, in these slum areas. It's not poor communities. We have poor communities. They have slum, dirt floors. Uh, you can see the floor they're standing on. As some of it has concrete, most of it is dirt, and that's their roof um, being held up by sticks, and a lot of times they put rocks on top, which is very, very dangerous because when a gust of wind blows, Sometimes the wind will blow the roof out from underneath the rock and the rock falls. But without the rocks holding the metal on top, there's no way to secure it. Um, and so, um, but those are my girls. And um, everything new they have is from me. Because I send $38 a month and I send 15 on their birthday. Um, if you haven't adopted anyone before, um, today's your day. Um, let me say this as, as well. I was reading this morning about adoption in the Bible, and this person came to my mind. It was the Apostle Paul. And he traveled around to church to church to church, city to region to region. But one time he came into a region and he saw this little boy. He was 16 years old. And he looked into his eyes and something triggered. There was something about Timothy that was unlike everyone else. And he said, okay, you're mine. And from that day forward, he called him my son. Now, he wasn't his natural father, yeah. but he spiritually adopted him. What I'm going to ask you to do after the service is to walk out there and to look at those pictures. And if you look into the eyes of one of them and you say, this one's different, then they're assigned to you. Now, if you look at all of them and no one jumps out, then walk out. But at least give yourself an opportunity to find out if somebody has been assigned to you. Does that sound fair? Does yeah. that sound fair? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. Thank you so much. Give a big round of applause. Um, now I want to talk about you. Because um, when you walk out of here, you're going to find out if somebody has been assigned to your heart. And you will know. Nobody needs to tell you. Um, nobody needs to say, hey, you need to adopt this person right here. Nobody needs to do that. You will know. Um, but before you shift into that mode of opening your heart to find out if you're supposed to sponsor someone, before you do that, I want to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to take care of you. 
there's a scripture that I committed to memory earlier this week. And I usually, three or four scriptures, I just add them to this bank of scriptures that I go over throughout the week. I just add them. But this time when I went to just add it to the bank, just cut, paste, and add it, I thought, I think this one's, this one's for Sunday. This one's for someone on Sunday. And so when I share it, you'll know if you're the person. It's in Psalms chapter 34, verse 18, where he says, I will comfort the brokenhearted, and I will save those who have a crushed spirit. Now, for those of you that think fast, you may say, Frankie, what does this have to do with compassion? Nothing. This is a verse, a word from God, that is for you today. There's someone here who has that broken heart. I want you to know he can comfort you. And he promises to comfort you. And he will comfort you. It's not an idea. It's not a good scripture like a, like a fortune cookie. No. He will comfort you. And I believe that he'll begin to comfort you in a much deeper way today. But before I give him an opportunity to warm your heart and touch your heart, I want to share another scripture that goes hand in hand with that one. It's in Psalms 56, 8, where he says, I have tracked your sorrows. I have collected every tear you've ever cried in a bottle. And then here's my favorite part. I have recorded them all. See, Psalms 34, 7 says that there's an angel of the Lord that surrounds those who fear him. If you love the Lord, there's an angel of God that surrounds you. But he doesn't just stand there. He delivers you like the scripture says. But I believe it's either him or his buddy. They are writing down every sorrow you have. They're writing down what you're feeling, what you're thinking, where you're at. Because when you have a crushed spirit, you can be in a room full of hundreds of people and feel all alone. What the Lord wants you to know this morning is that he knows. And not only does he know, but he's able to touch you and begin to sew and knit everything back together again. If you're in this room and your marriage is so bad that you feel awkward sitting next to your spouse, you have come to the right place. 
if your life feels so alone that the silence is deafening, you have come to the right place. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. In John 15, 5, it says that we can do nothing without you. Holy Spirit, move in this room. If you would, would you close your eyes and just begin to picture Jesus being about 10 feet away from you. Holy Spirit, begin to touch hearts and touch lives in this room right now. We love you. Even if it feels slightly awkward, would you just in this room, not out, not not so loud that you're a distraction, but loud enough to where you can hear yourself, would you just whisper to him as you're picturing his face, I love you, and say that over and over again. Everyone, please, go ahead. I love you. I believe as you start saying that, Now, if you sit here and you don't want to participate in this part, I understand and I don't want you to feel awkward and, and feel free to not say anything, but something powerful happens when the heavens hear your voice. So you can sit there if you want to. But I'm, I'm challenging you. On three, I want everybody here to say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you. One, two, three. I love you, Jesus. Just keep saying it over and over again. Just loud enough to where you can hear yourself. Go. I love you, Jesus. Keep saying it a thousand times in a row. And if you want to say something else, go ahead and say it. But just a thousand times in a row, go ahead. I love you, Jesus. A thousand times in a row, go ahead. I love you. I love you. Look at me for a moment. One of my favorite scriptures is in James chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It doesn't say the eloquent prayer. It's fervent. 
And I'm not going to ask you to pray again. But this is what I'm going to ask you to do. When you do pray, even if it's as simple as saying I love you, make it come from in here. I love you. 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 Would you stand your feet for me, please? Would you just raise both hands right where you're at? Prayer partners in the room, if you would, come down. Every prayer partner. Would you raise your hands again in this room? In First Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, it says, In every place of worship, worship with your hands raised. So if you feel comfortable with that, Lord, we love you. We praise you. And we honor you. In Psalms 56, 9, it says, Every time you pray, the tide of the battle turns. Every time you pray, the tide of the battle turns. We all need a miracle. We're all fighting a battle.